Our passage today is Matthew 23, 1 through 39. Matthew 23, the entire chapter today. This is one of the most cheerful passages in the Bible. (laughs) Then, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater? The gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, that is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean out the the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's good to be back with you in person today. I wish I brought better news. No, there is good news. But friends, to get to the good news, we have to go through the bad news first. The bad news, which Kevin just read for us. Seven woes. You see, our culture doesn't want woes. W-O-E-S. What our culture really wants is woes. W-H-O-A-S. Our culture doesn't want to hear woes. W-O-E-S. We want to hear, whoa, you're amazing just the way you are. Whoa, you're incredible. You can do it. We want to hear woes about me, not woes to me. And so the difficulty we're going to have in going through today's passage is not that we don't understand it. The difficulty with today's passage is that we don't want to understand it. Because ultimately, friends, woes, W-O-E-S, are warnings. And warnings, correctly understood, are a call for us to change. However, here at the beginning of the new year, this is a time for change. And more than change, friends, this is a time for hope. And this passage offers us both a call to change and hope. Hope for change. I promise we're going to see both. So let's jump right into it because there's a lot to cover in here. Jesus spoke these words the final week of his earthly life on Tuesday. He spoke it two days after Palm Sunday when he triumphantly entered Jerusalem. And he spoke it three days before Good Friday when he would hang upon a cross. 
outside of Jerusalem bearing your sin and mine. And here Jesus was again facing opposition from the religious leaders as we hear repeatedly the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus offers seven woes or warnings of judgment if things do not change. But before the woes, Jesus begins in verses 1 through 12 by warning the crowd against virtue signaling. He warns them against virtue signaling religion. The Cambridge Dictionary defines virtue signaling as an attempt to show other people that you are a good person. For example, by expressing opinions that will be acceptable to them. See, virtue signaling is playing to your audience. It's expressing disgust or favor to the politically correct ideas or cultural opinions around you. And friends, we all do it, whether right or left. We virtue signal. And virtue signaling is ultimately not about actually becoming more virtuous. It's merely impression management. And that's what we hear Jesus critiquing in the first 12 verses of this chapter. Jesus makes clear in 2 and 3 that when these religious leaders are actually teaching the word of God with the authority of God, the phrase in there is from the seed of Moses, then you should listen and you should obey. Because friends, regardless of the life or the practice of the one who delivers the truth, the word of God remains eternally true and eternally authoritative. So the issue that Jesus is addressing here in verses 1 through 12 is not against the word of God and it's not against true religious devotion. The issue that Jesus is addressing in the first 12 verses here is against, as is summarized in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. It's merely virtue signaling. They're all show and no substance. It's virtue signaling. And this isn't the first time that we've heard Jesus come down on such religious practice. In fact, back in the Sermon on the Mount, We heard Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 say, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. And friends, when Jesus warns against practicing righteousness, he uses the Greek word theomai, where we get our English word theater. He says, don't let your life be simply putting on religious theater. Don't go about making a religious show. He's calling out empty virtue signaling. Seven times in today's passage in Matthew 23 and three times back in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the Greek word that you heard over and over and over again, hupokrites, where we get our English word hypocrites. Friends, hypocrites in Greek, they were stage actors. It was the word for actors who stood on the stage and who did impressions, acted out a role for other people to see. And Jesus says, don't let your religious devotion devolve into mere theater where you're simply an actor on the stage. You're appearing virtuous without actually desiring any virtue. You're doing it all for the sake of signaling to others, not for the sake of being sanctified yourself. So beware of putting on a show 
with no substance. And three times in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls out those whose religion is merely a show. He says in Matthew 6, 2, they do it that they may be praised by others. In verse 5, that they may be seen by others. In verse 16, that their fasting may be seen by others. The common thread is by others. It's the same critique that Kevin just read for us from Matthew 23. You see, in verses 5 through 7 of today's passage, Jesus makes clear, why are these leaders doing everything? Verses 5 through 10 says, well, they want titles. They want invitations. They want greetings. They want status. Their religious practice is merely virtue signaling to get themselves more highly thought of in the eyes of others. And Jesus offers a solution at the end of this section in verses 11 and 12. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, friends, the answer is not perfection because none of us are perfect and none of us will be perfect until Jesus returns and makes us perfect. So the answer is not perfection. The answer is humility. Friends, true religion and religious practice shouldn't make us proud. True religious practice should make us humble. True religious practice should make us humble because true religious devotion is done not before an audience of others. It's done before an audience of one. True religious practice is devotion before God, done for God, not for others. Religious practice is not done to signal others. It's done that we might be sanctified by God. Because church, when we stand in the perfect light of God's holiness, how do we then boast about our own goodness? When our religious practice causes us to gaze unceasingly upon the glory and majesty of God, where is there room left for our pride? When our true religious practice encourages us to dwell in the presence of the Lord of all, what do we realize about ourselves? But we are not that God. We're not God at all. In fact, we're but servants. True religion humbles us. It humbles us before God. And more than that, church, it frees us. It frees us from having to prove anything to others. Back when we studied Matthew chapter 6, I quoted Christian author Oz Guinness, who wrote, We who live before the audience of one can say to the world, I have only one audience. Before you, I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, and nothing to lose. Friends, if you live your religious devotion before an audience of one, then you can say to the audience before you, I have nothing to prove because your approval cannot add to me and your disapproval cannot diminish me. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for him. True religion is lived before the audience of one. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't living it before him. They were living it for everyone else to be seen. Church, who will be your audience? Jesus goes on in Matthew 23 and he offers seven woes or warnings about the religious practice of the scribes and Pharisees. And friends, these warnings, they aren't vindictive. They aren't spiteful as much as they're judicial. 
He's saying your practice has been weighed and judged and found wanting. And church, while these warnings are aimed at the religious leaders of his day, these are warnings that every one of us needs to hear and needs to heed. And the first two woes are found in verse 13 and verse 15. The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, you've become barriers to God instead of bridges to Him. And not only does Jesus twice call these religious leaders hypocrites, in verse 15 He warns those who follow Him, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Your followers, you're making them twice as much children of hell. You know, Jesus' words right here and actually throughout this whole chapter, they are so direct and they're so harsh. You know, some people actually struggle to believe these were Jesus' words at all. They go, this doesn't sound like Jesus meek and mild. But Jesus uses labels like hypocrite and child of hell and he doesn't use them, friends, lightly. He uses dire labels here because the warning is dire. Church, eternity is on the line. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were promising people salvation, but all they could offer people was actually damnation. And Jesus goes, this is too dangerous a game to play. We can't tiptoe around the fact, friends, that there is no salvation in false religion. There's no salvation in false religion. False gospels and other religions can never make you a child of God. Only, as Jesus says, a child of hell. Church, understand the gospel. Jesus declared He is the only way to salvation. And any other way, at very best, is misguided. And at worst, it's maliciously misleading. But either way, there is no salvation in any other way. Only damnation. Church, Jesus foregoes political correctness and he leaves no room for question. He has no patience for pretenders or deceivers because there's only one way to God and it's through him. And this message is too crucial and too vital to mince words. And he says, anyone who claims otherwise, like you, scribes and Pharisees, you're shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven in the faces of those that are following you. There is no salvation except through Jesus Christ. Friends, have you entered into His kingdom by Him who is the door? He continues in verses 16 through 20. He condemns those whose religious practice is just to live for loopholes. I mean, the whole discussion about oaths and the gold and the sacrifice on the altar versus the altar itself, it's all looking for loopholes. Friends, a legal loophole is a technicality or unclear section of law that allows someone to avoid following a rule or fulfilling an obligation. We talk about about tax uh, loopholes in our own tax code that allows people to reduce the amount of tax that they pay. Or somehow loopholes in our criminal cases, we say he got off on a technicality. Pharisees were masters of technicalities. They were looking for loopholes. They were able to say, well, technically, here, I'm obeying the law. But at the same time they said that, their hearts were far, far from God. Church, beware of bare minimal obedience. 
Beware of bare minimal obedience. Is your heart asking, what is the least, the minimum that I have to do and still be considered obedient? Are you looking for loopholes and technicalities that will make you look good before others, but allow you to avoid real obedience to God? Friends, the Pharisees and teachers of the law did not love God. And they did not love His law. They didn't desire to honor and please God by their obedience. They didn't want to please God by their lives of devotion. They were looking for ways to do the bare minimum that they had to do to technically obey and still look good to the watching crowd. Church, is your obedience before God simply a duty? Or is it a delight? In verses 23 and 24, Jesus warns against majoring on the minors. Uh, Listen again to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Mint and dill and cumin. I mean, Jesus is getting a little spicy here. Jesus says, tithing 10% of your garden spices is good. These things you ought to have done in obedience to the Old Testament law. However, living a life of justice, mercy, and faithfulness is much more difficult and demanding. See, notice Jesus doesn't say that the minor things are unimportant. He's talking to the Pharisees who are obsessing on the minor things, friends, in order to avoid dealing with the major things. They're actually using the minor things as an excuse for not addressing the major things. Jesus says, you're choosing to focus on the easy stuff in order to somehow excuse yourself from taking the time to engage the real and deep issues. Because tithing spices is easy, but justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you aren't going to accomplish that one in a day. And more than that, friends, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you're not going to accomplish that by merely human effort, are you? Jesus says you're avoiding the heart of the law because for you to fulfill the heart of the law, for you to actually become just, for you to actually practice mercy, for you to actually become faithful would require you to come to me. Because you need my power to make you just and my power to make you merciful and my power to change you that you might be faithful. So you're content to wade in the shallow end far from me, cutting off your dill and your mint, because there you don't need me at all. Friends, is your religious practice merely your own efforts being practiced far away from the God who's called you? Or do you understand that the heart of the law, the heart, the call to justice and mercy and faithfulness, friends, that requires that we draw near to the heart of God. Because only through His Spirit and His strength might we become just. Might we practice mercy. Might we be faithful. Only through the power of God at work with us might we become what we are not and do what we cannot. Are you waiting in the shallow end in your own strength or going deep, deep into the heart of God that He might make you truly just, merciful, and faithful?
And then Jesus hits them with two identical back-to-back woes in verses 25 through 28. Talks about bowls, clean on the outside, unclean within, whitewashed tombs. Bowls and tombs. Both appear clean on the outside, but the inside is unclean, he says. Again, friends, he's talking about performative religion. He's talking about virtue signaling without actually becoming virtuous. Jesus' concern, friends, his concern is not that we appear clean. His concern is that we be made clean. The ultimate critique that Jesus is bringing of the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees and of every other religion is, friends, it simply doesn't go deep enough. Every other religious practice simply cannot go deep enough. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, hey, don't just worry about murder. Worry about murdering someone in your heart by your anger. Don't just worry about adultery. Worry about adultery in your heart as you lust. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you all are murderers and adulterers in waiting. Every one of you. Every one of us. He says, if you haven't committed murder or adultery, it's not because you're so righteous. It's not because you're such a good person at your core. Your anger and your lust show us that at your core, you are a murderer and an adulterer in waiting. And if other external factors had been removed, you'd jump right in. Because, friends, external factors restrain us, self-discipline, societal expectations, relationships that we fear to break. And Jesus says, but if you were given the chance to get away scot-free, if you were given the chance to do it and no one would ever know, take away all the external restraints, what does your heart show that you would do? There's a murderer living there. There's an adulterer living there. See, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount makes clear that, friends, what God desires is not merely the external. He says, I've come to change you from the inside out. Because other religions just don't go deep enough. They don't change what needs to be changed. Friends, our problem is radical. The word radical comes from Latin meaning root or core. The problem is at our core. It is radical. It's at the root. It's our Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, He says, your religion might make you look clean on the outside, but it hasn't done anything to go and change the inside, has it? Has it? And friends, what about your religion? Is your religion merely self-help? To kind of clean up the exterior, give it a little shine? Or friends, does your religion offer you good news? Good news that you might be transformed from within. And the final woe here in verses 29 through 36 is that the people of Jesus' day are no better than their fathers and forefathers before them. Humanity's not getting any better, friends. It's not getting any better. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day claimed, well, well, if I had lived during the time of the prophets, I certainly would have listened to them. I mean, I never would have persecuted or flogged or killed the prophets like my ancestors did because I'm so much more aware and awake than they were. And Jesus says, no, no, actually you're showing that you're exactly like 
them. I mean, friends, we say the same things today, the same foolish, ridiculous things today that they were saying. If I was there in Jesus' day, I would have believed him. Oh, really? If I was there in pre-Civil War America, I wouldn't have owned slaves. If I was in Nazi Germany, I would have resisted the Nazis. Friends, this is what theologian C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. It's a prideful disdain of all of those who've gone before us. And it's a prideful assumption that somehow we're more advanced, more aware, more woke than those who went before us. But friends, we're all products of our time as much as they were products of their time. And if we had lived in their times, we likely would have made many, if not all, of the same errors that they made. And Jesus says, woe to this generation, because you say you would have listened to the prophets if you'd been back then. However, guess what? All the prophets that you say you honor, they all spoke about me. I'm here. Have you received me? You're no better than your forefathers. Jesus says, guess what? All the prophets who you say that you would have listened to and respected and followed, you know what? That you wouldn't have persecuted or flogged or or killed all of them. Guess what? They pointed to me. And more than that, I'm the greatest of the prophets. And what are you about to do to me? What are you about to do to me? Jesus says, you're not any different. You're not any different from your forefathers. You're just as bad, just as guilty as your forefathers. And in fact, all of the guilt of all the generations that have rejected the Lord and his message and killed all of his messengers, it's being repeated by this generation and it's going to come to a head in this generation. And in verse 35, Jesus says, So that on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered, whom you murdered, between the sanctuary and the altar. Friends, Abel was the first person murdered in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. And Zechariah was the last person murdered in the Bible. 2 Chronicles 24, because Chronicles is the final book of the Hebrew Scriptures according to their arrangement of the canon. So Jesus says the righteous blood of all of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from literally A to Z, From beginning to end, it's all being repeated today and it's all going to come to a head here and now. Because rather than you being any different or from or better than previous generations, you're doing the same thing. But friends, it's even worse for you. It's even worse for you. Because friends, if it is bad, if it's a bad thing to reject and flog and kill one of God's prophets, how much worse is it to reject And to flog and to kill God's son. Of whom the prophets all spoke. And to whom the prophets all pointed. Jesus says, you're still doing it. You're still doing what has been done generation after generation. And now judgment on such rejection is coming. And it is here. And he makes clear in verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Friends, the Jewish people of his generation who rejected him face judgment and the house of the Lord, the temple, would be destroyed and left desolate in A.D. 70 and Israel scattered. Judgment was coming upon that generation. However, friends, make no mistake and woe to us. Woe to all of us because an even greater judgment is coming. 
And even greater judgment is coming in one day. That judgment will be upon all rebellion and all rejection of Jesus. Friends, the warnings of Jesus in this chapter are dire. Woe to us if we just continue on as we always have in self-righteous, self-serving, shallow, virtue-signaling, powerless, God-rejecting religion. Because judgment has been declared. And friends, from that judgment, no one will escape. Well, none will escape in their own power or by their own works. Because Jesus concludes His woes, W-O-E-S, with the most incredible woe, W-H-O-A. Woe, He says, damnation is coming, but woe, salvation is possible. Listen again to Jesus' words in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Friends, Jesus declares you are damnably guilty. Innocent blood is on your hands. Rebellion is in your past and uncleanness is in your heart and judgment is coming. Friends, remember in verse 15, we heard Jesus call the, un, the unrepentant. He called them children of hell. In verse 33, we heard him say, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Friends, Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Judgment is coming on those who reject the Lord. And neither the religious posturer nor poser is going to be spared, only the penitent. Your goodness and your religious practice can never shelter you from the coming judgment. The only thing that can shelter us from the coming judgment is Jesus Christ. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And friends, for Jesus' original hearers who were well versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, they would have immediately heard that and thought of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm of confidence for those who would take refuge in the Lord. And it includes this line, Psalm 91, verse 4. The Lord will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And in declaring this, Jesus says to all of Israel, and He says to all of us today, I am the Lord, and I have come here to shelter you. Are you willing. Friends, the seven woes of Matthew 23 are bad news. Because these woes in our condition are worse than we feared. But the woe of the gospel. Friends, it is more incredible than we ever dared hope. The good news is that all who will come to Jesus in faith will find shelter in Him. Jesus makes clear, friends, our religion is too shallow, our strength is too little, our devotion is imperfect. So as we will sing when we eventually close our gathering, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Friends, we can't keep our hold. Our religion, what it can't do, Christ has done for us. He must hold us fast. Friends, which woe, which woe will be yours? 
Will yours be the woes of damnation or the woe of salvation? This year, seek Christ. This year, shelter yourself under the wing of the only one who is powerful enough to hold you fast. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to the table that Christ prepared for us by the shedding of His blood. We give you thanks. Hold us fast. Hold us fast. May we not trust in our devotion, in our strength, in our practice, but may we shelter. May we shelter in Jesus Christ in whom there is forgiveness of sins, in whom there is shelter from judgment, in whom there is life forevermore. Lord, feed us as we come to your table now. In Jesus' name, amen. If the elders would come forward for the serving of communion.